Welcome, everybody. So those of you who don't know me, I'm Paul Geyer. I'm delighted to introduce Jacques Gallipot. Jacques is professor of hematology, medical oncology, and pediatrics at Emory University in Atlanta School of Medicine. He's director of Emory Personalized Immunotherapy Center with the nice acronym EPIC. Those of you who have seen the news about the um, new law school in our named after our former Supreme Court Justice know that it's nice to have a good acronym. <clears throat> He's co-director of the Winship Cancer Institute Program in Tumor Immunology and Immunotherapy. Before telling you more about him, let me cover some of the bases. Dr. Gallopo does not have any financial interests. He reports that he does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of product or device. He attests that he's not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to what he's going to talk about today. For CME credit, please use the activity code at the end of this presentation. The code will also be displayed outside the room after the presentation. How come I didn't memorize that? Okay. So Jacques got his MD at the University of Montreal. Um, he then went on and did a residency at McGill, and then he did a three-year fellowship in Hemonc at Tufts New England Medical Center. And so he was in Boston for those three years and could drive back to Montreal, visit family, and pass by us all those times. And he was always wondering what was the best thing at Dartmouth. Well, this morning he had breakfast at Lou's, so he's all set. <laughs> Um, today you'll hear a lot about novel molecules called fusokines, and he'll introduce that, and I'm not going to go into to that at all. But I'd like you to also be aware that even before that, he's a world leader in development of human mesochymal stem cells and their use in, in people, and he has INDs to, to test those, over 60 publications. His, his latest publication that I could find was a novel platelet lysate hydrogel for endothelial cell and mesenchymal stem cell-directed neovascularization. So he is a leader in innovative ways of making stem cells work for people. Um, he's now innovating with these things called fusokines that you'll hear about. Um, he has, you know, many, uh, over 150 publications. I didn't try to figure it all out. Um, he's definitely a, um, a great pioneering person in this field and really delighted to have him join us today. So without further ado, he will come and talk to us about fusokines, a novel class of biopharmaceuticals for enabling cancer cell immunotherapy. Welcome, Jacques. So, Paul, thank you for the uh, kind introduction. It's a delight to be here at Dartmouth College. And again, yes, uh, Lou's uh, this morning was terrific. And uh, dinner last night and dinner tonight as well. So, uh, well, let me kick off. Uh, this is the every disclosure, no conflict of interest, so we're all covered here. So, uh, uh, Paul mentioned that I did my HEMOC uh, fellowship uh, at Tufts in Boston, and then I went on and did a two-year postdoc at St. Jude. This is in the mid-90s. 
And uh, cancer gene therapy was all the rage. The American Society of Gene Therapy was established in those years, and uh, gene therapy was the cure for everything just about then. What was really, really hot in gene therapy was uh, cancer gene therapy. And there the approach people were using uh, were typically, for example, take a, uh, a viral vector of some sort, like say adenovirus, and to gene modify tumor cells, either ex vivo or in vivo, to elicit an anti-tumor immune response. So everybody was excited about gene therapy because the, the, the vector systems had been developed, so now people could start dwelling upon what is it that you d deliver to tumor cells to render them immunogenic so the immune system could recognize them and cure you of your cancer. That was the big challenge in the mid-90s. So the, the cytokines people were thinking of introducing into tumor cells were cytokines that had been uh, cloned. Now, most of the cytokines, immunokines, chemokines were cloned in the early 90s. The two hottest ones early on were IL-2 and GMCSF, which are amongst the very few cytokines that have been FDA approved for human use. Now, the reason people were dwelling on IL-2 and GMCSF was if you gene engineer a tumor to express IL-2 and you implant that in an immune-competent mouse, it'll never grow. It's as simple as that. But the mouse does not acquire anti-tumor immunity memory. So IL-2 is really good at driving an innate anti-cancer immune response, but it's really poor at driving memory immunity against cancer. GMCSF does precisely and exactly the opposite. If you gene modify a tumor cell like melanoma, in a mouse to express GMCSF, and you put it in a mouse, actually the tumor will grow a little bit faster. It's very poor at driving innate anti-tumor response. However, if you irradiate that tumor, so it won't grow, but still makes GMCSF, the mouse has the time to develop an adaptive memory immune response, and then it can clear the tumor. So GMCSF is really good at driving immune memory against cancer, but it's really poor at driving the innate response. So in 1997, I came back to Montreal at McGill as a junior faculty. I was there for 13 years before I moved to Emory six years ago. And junior faculty are full of crazy ideas, so you know, and you want to, you know, make your own. So I figured, what could I do that would be innovative? So I figured, naively, I'll bake my cake and try to eat it too. So the idea I had was, is it possible to couple the driving the innate anti-tumor immune response of IL-2 with the adaptive memory driven by GMCSF, which are normally two distinct immune physiological processes. So the idea I had was, why can't I just clone and frame the two cDNAs and generate one single polypeptide, where at the N-terminus it's IL-2, and the C-terminus is GMCSF, and et voila, I'll be able to drive both contemporaneously and not cure cancer. So, GMCSF, uh, so we call them GIFT, so for GMCSF and interleukin fusion transgene, and the suffix 2 means IL-2. By the way, GIFT in German means poison. But that being said, uh, so here you have the ribbon structure, what it would look like. And this is, uh, again, GMCSF. The intercytokine bridge 
People have asked me, oh, how did you engineer that? Did you use computers? You used two amino acids, five No, all I did is I just used the signal peptide of IL-2, which does not get cleaved off because the protease can't recognize a cleavage site because it's all embedded behind GMCSF. So this is just a signal peptide of IL-2 that normally in the mature form would not be there, and you have IL-2. And with this, we called fusokine for fusion cytokine. So this is the kind of data that we generated in those days. This is a cancer research paper in 2003. The first one where we, this is a sort of lead compound in this family. So now you have mouse GMCSF. Uh, this is the signal peptide. Again, we cloned it in frame with IL-2. You see the methionine here from the start of the signal peptide, but it doesn't get cleaved off. You can transfect B16 melanoma cells, and when you collect supernatant from these cells, it'll secrete a protein that's immunoreactive with IL-2. That's just a loading control for IL-2. And this is of a molecular weight that fits with the sum of this. You do the reciprocal experiment using an anti-GMCSF, so we show that we have now a molecule of the predicted molecular weight that's immunoreactive to IL-2 and GMCSF. But just showing that the domains are there was not sufficient. We had to demonstrate functionality. So here what we have is uh, uh, a cell line that's uh, responsive to IL-2 as a mitogen, and we show that GIF-2 leads to proliferation of the cell line, the CTLL-2, and this is cell line that's responsive to GMCSF as a mitogen, JAWS-2, and GIF-2 leads to proliferation as well as GMCSF, but IL-2 does not. So these experiments show that both domains are there. They're they're immunoreactive, and they deploy their own intrinsic individual functionalities. So if you take <clears throat> a B16 melanoma cell line and put that under the skin of a normal black six mouse, the tumor cells never grow. 100% of the mice are tumor-free. If you have an IL-2-producing melanoma cell, I know what I kicked off. I told you IL-2-producing melanoma don't grow. That's the same thing. And here's a GMCSF-producing mouse melanoma cell line. Despite the cells making buckets of GMCSF, the tumors grow and kill the mice before they can get an adaptive immune response. So what we did is we took mice that were uh, pre-treated with either uh, irradiated GIF-2, irradiated IL-2, or GMCSF melanoma, all the mice are tumor-free. Then we challenged them with wild-type melanoma cells to see if they had an adaptive immune response. And only the mice that were pre-treated with GIF-2 or GMCSF had acquired memory, not IL-2. I get you my point. So GIF-2 led to me baking and eating my cake, which was I could drive both an innate and an adaptive immune tumor response. And what was interesting was we observed there was a gain of function that was not foreshadowed by this. Is that When we dissociated tumors that had a GIF-2 in them, or the tumor challenges, uh, there was a big NK cell response that was acquired. And we'll come back to that. So this is all mouse-to-mouse -mouse experiments because uh, cytokines do have, certain cytokines do have interspecies promiscuity. So you could, if a graduate student by mistake puts human IL-2 in a mouse, it'll work. <coughs> but if you put human GMCSF in a mouse, it won't work because a GM, mouse GMCSF receptor doesn't recognize it. So to validate if this could be replicated in human cells, we created the human ortholog, where now we cloned human GMCSF and human IL-2. And then what we found was, of course, we couldn't give that to people, so we worked with human responder cells in vitro. 
And using human GIF2 as stimulating peripheral blood mononuclear cells, we found that human GIF2 led to a humongous production of interferon gamma relative to controls in vitro. So now we wanted to understand more the mechanism of action. Everything I showed you up to now is descriptive from an immune biology point of view, but from a cell biochemistry point of view, how does this tick? So let's interrogate first what happens with the IL-2 receptor. The IL-2 receptor is trimeric. There's an alpha, beta, gamma chain. And presumably IL-2 or GIF-2, the IL-2 component sits upon the receptor and leads to a downstream signaling pathway, which is JAK-1 and JAK-3 driven, which will lead to the phosphorylation of STAT-3 and STAT-5. So we started interrogating that in vitro with human PBMCs. And what you'll find is if you stimulate human lymphoid cells in vitro with IL-2, you'll get a canonical response of phosphostat-5 and a bit of phosphostat-3. But I think I'll convince the skeptics in the room that if I used equimolar amounts of GIFT, Two, you got a very robust hyperagonistic response, much more phosphostat 5 and much more phosphostat 3, showing that GIF2 docked on the IL2 receptor, but was some, doing something qualitatively, meaningfully different than IL2 on its own. So here, the first lesson we learned was that GIF2 led to a hyperagonistic response downstream of the IL-2 receptor. This eventually, uh, we had uh, good success with the GIF2, and my group went on to design and publish a series of fusokines, uh, GMCSF and IL-4, IL-7, IL-9, IL-15, IL-21, which are all the IL common gamma chain into leukins, but let me dwell upon GIF4. GIF4 is the fusion of GMCSF and IL-4. So here are all the signaling pathways of the common gamma chain into leukins. They're called common gamma chain because they all share the so-called IL-2 receptor common gamma chain. You know the movie Bubble Boy? The reason he's a bubble boy, he has no immune system. He has no immune system because the common gamma chain is on the X chromosome. And if you lack that, you lack virtually the receptors to all the interleukins. That's why they're so immune suppressed. So the common gamma chain is shared by all, but the beta chain and alpha chain varies. And IL-4 is heterodimeric, has a common gamma chain and a specific alpha chain. And it signals via STAT1, STAT3, but a lot of STAT6 as well. So when we first made GMCSF and IL-4, our hypothesis was that this should lead to a super-duper effect on monocyte macrophage differentiation. Because anybody in the room here that works with monocytes who wants to derive antigen-presenting cells in vitro, the way to differentiate them, typically it's a cocktail of adding some GMCSF, add some IL-4, maybe you can tickle in a bit of LPS, et voila, they become APCs. So we figured if we fuse together GMCSF and IL-4, we should deploy a gain-of-function effect that would be most detectable on myelomonocytes. So to test that idea, uh, what we did is we made both, now I'm showing you both a mouse and a human ortholog. Now you're familiar with the ribbon uh, structure. This one looks a little bit more like a boomerang. The cytokine uh, bridge is the IL-4 single peptide. 
And here what we saw was, again, now I'm going straight to the cell biochemistry. The first thing we asked was if you take a peripheral blood, mononuclear cells from a human, and treat them with GMCSF IL-4 or GIF-4, what you see with GIF-4 is you'll get a hyperphosphorylation response of every single stat that's downstream of the IL-4 receptor. Again, again, a hyperagonistic effect. So and then, uh, so it's. Uh, I was uh, joking yesterday, Paul, talking with uh, Paul. Each time you make a fuse of kind, it's a bit like a Cracker Jack box. You never care about the popcorn; it's more about the prize that's inside the little envelope in there. So each time you do a fuse of kind, you really can't predict exactly what's going to happen. So since we can't predict and you have to be open-minded, the way we screen the effect is we'll take mouse splenocytes. So you kill a mouse, take the spleen out. It's a bit like taking peripheral blood mononuclear cells from a human subject. But then the Petri dish, and you add the fusokine to it, you wait a couple of days, you do flow cytometry, and you ask the question, what grows out of it? Just to have an idea of what to chase. We were expecting myelomonocytes to be activated and maybe even proliferate. And when we saw clusters under the microscope after treating mouse splenocytes with GIF-4, that's exactly what we expected. But when we did flow cytometry, we were shocked, shocked to see that all these proliferating cells were B cells. So this was fascinating. So we purified B cells. And we added the F4 versus the control. The controls didn't do anything. And by CFSC dilution, we showed that GIF-4 was a profound mitogen for B cells. So we went on. <clears throat> so we started interrogating the B cells by flow cytometry. So the B cells are all, the blue is all the uh, GIF4 treated cells versus isotype. There are CD19, 22, and they're activated, they're CD38 positive, but they really robustly co-express um, co-stimulatory molecules, CD80, 86, MHC class 2. They still expressed IgM, so they weren't uh, class switching. Interestingly, they had a lot of CD138 on board. So, okay, GIF4 is a uh, mitogen for B cells. Here I have a solution looking for a problem to fix. So before getting my student getting too excited, I said, look, we're going to do in vitro work, but this is all translational. We're doing basically engineering here. We're manufacturing new pharmaceuticals. We really want to make sure that we can give this to a mouse and the mouse won't explode in its cage. So we would take a gift form. We would take initial media. We would concentrate it 100-fold because, again, transfected cell lines make only minute amounts. And we would concentrate it because the maximum bolus you can inject the tailbone in a mouse without killing it is about 200 microliters. So we would generate the maximum amount, 200 microliters, and say, let's do like a phase one trial, maximum tolerated dose. Let's go to the maximum dose, give that to the mouse and tail vein. Let's see what happens. He injected the protein a few times. The mice were fine. They didn't shed their fur. They didn't hunch, no diarrhea. They didn't die. Waited a couple of days. We killed the mice. We opened them up to see what would happen. And lo and behold, the most striking feature observed is the mice developed splenomegaly. These are the spleen of two uh, control mice. You do GMCSF and IL-4. GIF-4, you see the spleen is enlarged. You can dissociate this and interrogate the number of cells. And we saw that we were getting in vivo expansion of endogenous B cells in the mice. Also, a bit of T cells, but not as not uh, the magnitude was not as great as uh, the B cells. 
when we further interrogated the phenotype of the B cells, we were particularly intrigued by the fact that the F4 led to homeostatic expansion of endogenous plasma cells as well. CD138 positive, you see here to control the test. And again, we're just enumerating that there. So in the normal mouse, you gave the F4, and it altered B cell homeostasis in such a way that endogenous pool of B cells went up, plasma cells went up. And something really fascinating is the pool of GMCSF, this is an ICS, intracellular cytokine staining of B cells for GMCSF, of GMCSF secreting B cells went up. Now this has been described, it's been suggested one of the most important sources of endogenous GMCSF in an infected animal is B cells. And we saw that this subset was increased, and this is a metricize just here. So then we did the, the Hail Mary experiment. Well, this is the last experiment, but I'm putting it first, where we would basically implant in mice B16 melanoma on day zero. And on day five, for those of you that are familiar with this mouse model, they'll get a little peppercorn under the skin. So it's palpable, so you're confident there's a pre-established tumor. And then without just giving any antigens or anything, just giving GIF4 and driving their endogenous immune response, we saw that there was significant and substantial growth retardation of B16 melanoma, something that was not achieved by giving both GMCSF and IL-4 independently into the same mouse. Now, <clears throat> this is not shocking, and I'll tell you why. Because now people recognize that the B cells, assuming this all B cell driven, and I'm going to show you data that shows so, there's clearly a, a role of B cells in mitigating tumor growth. Uh, Tom Tedder is a B reg maven at Duke, and he had noticed, he published it in Cancer Research a while ago, if you take B16 melanoma and you stain for B cells, there's a lot of B cells in, in the tumor. Now, he's a B regulatory guy. In his mind's eye, aha, these are B regs, they make IL-10, they're immune suppressive, ergo, they're driving melanoma growth. My idea is if I deplete those B cells, I should cure melanoma. There's a drug to deplete B cells, rituxan, that's sort of what he was thinking about. So he depleted B cells in melanoma-bearing mice, and what happened? The tumors grew faster exact opposite to what you predicted, which suggested that the B cells that were tumor infiltrating were part of an immune response against the melanoma restricting its growth. So this kind of data sort of foreshadows what we observed, that if you augment B cell biology, B cell biology, it can have anti-tumor effects. So <clears throat> to demonstrate if B cells matter in the system, we use a gene therapy trick. So here what we did is we now genetically engineer B16 melanoma cells to make GIF4. And this is just a reagent to test some hypotheses now. So that's the, we're not going to give protein to the animals. We've just got B16 engineered to make GIF4 stably and all the appropriate controls. These are B16 engineered to do the rest. So if you put wild type B16 in a mouse, the tumors grow very aggressively. You have to sack the mouse within three weeks. If you genetically engineer a B16 melanoma to make GMCSF and IL-4 contemporaneously, the tumors grow. But if it's B16 making GIF4, the tumors don't grow. Okay. This is the wild-time mice. 
if and if you take now just the B16GIF4 right here in wild-type mice and you replicate the experiment in wild-type mice, the tumor doesn't grow. But if you put these exact same B16GIF4 cells in a mu and T mouse, this right here, the open circle, a mu and T mouse is completely normal, except it doesn't have B cells. So in this B cell deficient mouse, GIF4 didn't work no more. So this was the first direct piece of data that GIF4 led to an anti-tumor response via B cells in, in between. And we went on to show that in UMT mice that uh, you put in uh, B, uh, B16 GIF4, if you adoptively transferred B cells from a wild-time mouse, you would rescue the anti-tumor effect. So this is an add-back experiment. And um, not only that, we found that a GIF4 contemporaneously seems to drive the ability of B cells to produce antibody. And we did that with a um, uh, OVA system. But what we went on to show afterwards, and this was quite intriguing to us, if you put GIF4 in a wild-type mouse, the tumors don't grow. If you put it in a B cell-deficient mice, the tumors grow. But if you put it in a mouse that has B cells, it has everything else except the monocyte macrophages don't have the FC receptor, which is the mechanism by which monocyte macrophages recognize antibody-coated cells and gobble them up, we lost the effect, which suggests that B cells are necessary, but they're not sufficient. And the antibodies that are produced by either those B cells or other B cells against melanoma are also necessary for the effect. So ADCC matters. So uh, <clears throat> in a reductionist way now, to best understand how GIF4 augmented B cells work and do, we used an approach where we would take normal mouse B cells in a Petri dish. We would stimulate them with GIF4. We call those GIF4 B cells now. And we would adoptively transfer those cells in a mouse and ask the question, where do those cells go? First thing. So to answer that question, we took a luciferase transgenic B cell treated with GIF4 ex vivo, put in 10 million tail vein, and then later on did in vivo imaging. And you can appreciate here, day two, four, six, eight, and ten, that you got a really strong splenic blush. So the untreated mouse, this is a mouse on its back, and this is where the spleen is, which persists about a week and then poops out. So GIF4 augmented B cells have a intrinsic idiosyncratic homing straight to the spleen. <clears throat> and we wanted to validate that using a different system. So now we use a GFP transgenic B cells, true and GIF4, give them IV, and ask the question, can we detect these in the spleen, but could we detect them in other organs as well? So what we did is we killed the mice on day two, took out their spleen, took out their bone marrow, took out their lymph nodes, dissociated that, and asked, are there any GFP events? And yes. Not only do the GIF4 B cells home in to the spleen, they can also home into the bone marrow and the mesenteric lymph node. But importantly, in that mouse, if you put in melanoma, would the adoptively transferred B cells go to the melanoma cells? And the answer is yes. 
And that's what we did here. Melanoma day zero, we adoptively transferred uh, GFP gift for B cells. Melanoma growth was suppressed, and you could retrieve B cells at home to the tumor. And here, <clears throat> so this kind of data foreshadows two possible uses translationally of biochemical augmentation of B cells. One is you could take the gift for protein and give it to people the way we gave it to mice. That's the classic pharmaceutical approach. An alternate approach could be that a human subject who has cancer, you can take a leukapheresis product, which is a procedure you set for three hours, and I can collect 10 to the 9 mononuclear cells, augment their own B cells ex vivo, wash off the GIF4, and adoptively transfer autologous cells back. But to do that, you need the human ortholog. We made one recombinantly. We also made a human ortholog in yeast, which works well as well. So these are the kind of tools one could move forward with. A classic protein pharmaceutical approach. The pros are it's deployable. The pros are doctors and pharma can wrap their head around it. The cons are there can always be unforeshadowed off-target effects that murine models could not predict, so that's one of the risks. If you use a cell therapy approach, those risks are mitigated because you're not giving back the recombinant protein to the human subject, you're giving back their own augmented cells that are the key effector cells. The cons are it's, well, it's a personalized cell therapy approach. It's clearly more onerous to do so than just giving you a shot of a protein that came in a vial. So this is the gift for data. As you see, there's hyperphosphorylation of all these events. There's a gain of function by targeting B cells, which we did not predict would occur with a gift for treatment. Uh, they adopt a, a unique phenotype. They have T cells acquiring uh, effective function. I glossed over that data. There's a robust ADCC effect. And to reduce this to practice, I think it's self-evident to everybody in this audience, it could, yes, be used in anti-tumor therapy, but it could also be used as a vaccine adjuvant or viral clearance as well. GIF-7 is the next one down the line. GIF-7 is a fusion of GMCSF and IL-7. That was uh, published uh, just last past two years. You're now familiar with our cartoon, GMCSF and IL-7. And uh, IL-7 alone is a very intriguing molecule. This French outfit called Cytheris got the patent on recombinant IL-7. They were giving it in human subjects that had HIV AIDS, the purpose of which was not to treat their AIDS. Everybody's treated with AIDS now if you take your pills, was to do viral clearance. And they got an interesting signal, but the company went to belly up for company reasons. But their data was compelling. So IL-7 is an intriguing molecule. So if there's means of augmenting the IL-7 effect, that could be very interesting. So GIF-7, when we did a uh, transcriptome analysis, led to a signature that was distinct from IL-7 alone or its combination with GMCSF, and plucking out the strongest upregulators here, we validated with specific genes that GIF-7, again, deployed a T-cell response that was qualitatively distinct in regards in particular to production of IL-17 and IL-22. And what we found was that GIF-7 
was an extraordinarily potent mitogen for T cells in vitro uh, at concentrations that were two logs lower. If you look here, this is 100 nanogram per ml by 7 This is the CFSC dilution. And using 100 times less to give 7, we got a similar pattern, which was superior to that of IL-7 alone. And uh, somewhat of the same thing in CD8s, but CD4s were clearly more responsive. And this is the mitogenic response of CD4. So again, now the really cool thing about GIF-7 is here. Anybody in this room that's worked with human lymphocytes and you put IL-2, eventually they poop out. A lot of the cells poop out on you. And IL-7 is the same thing. This is an NX and PI. So if you take uh, human lymphocytes and keep them in culture for too long, a week, virtually all the cells are dead after a week. NX and PI. GMCSF and IL-7 doesn't rescue it. GMCSF doesn't do anything. But GIF-7 cells, a goodly fraction, are still alive and well after more than a week. So it's anti-hepatotic. Not only is it a better mitogen, and prevents apoptosis, what we found was that the GIF-7 expanded cells, here looking at both the CD4 and CD8s, were PD-1 low. Here, these are PD-1 high, PD-1 high, I'll send PD-1 low. Now, PD-1 matters because PD-1 is an exhaustion marker. One of the problems about adoptive cell therapy with T cells is you can expand them for weeks and weeks till you have gazillions and gazillions of them. But if they're all exhausted and you put them back, it don't work no more. So if there's a method by which you can expand cells that are not exhausted, that'd be good. But here's the really, really cool thing about GIF-7. So again, I told my, my student, you have to do the, the mouse cannot explode experiment. So he gave GIF-7 IV to mice, normal mice. And what he found was the mice did not develop meaningful splenomegaly. They developed thymic hyperplasia. So the thymus in the mice started to swell up. And you can metricize that. This is the number of thymocytes in mice that had a couple of doses of GIF-7 versus IL-7 alone. So basically, GIF-7 drove the homeostatic, broke through the homeostatic control of thymus by driving predominantly double negative cells. And this is what's down here. Thymic precursors express the IL-7 receptor. Then it turns off. And then central memory T cells re-express the IL-7 receptor. So what we found was GIF-7 was driving the expansion of thymic precursors, leading to thymic hyperplasia, which is reversible. If you gave it, you drove it, and you took it away, it came down. Now, uh, histology, you see cortex, cortex hyperplasia in the thymus of the mice, and that's uh, metricized here. Now, uh, um, young folks, your thymus is the size of my fist. Oh, God, I'm exaggerating. But when you mature, your thymus shrinks down. And a lot of people believe that aging is really a one big old inflammatory disorder. And thymic involution is a big part of that. That's why, you know, they propose getting the shingles vaccine when you're over 50, not when you're over 20. So thymic involution is a real problem with immune dysfunction in the maturing human adult. 
But it's also a big problem in patients underwent bone marrow transplant because you completely zapped out their endogenous immune system. It's a big problem people got chemo. People who have HIV AIDS or thymus melts away to nothing. So if GIF7 leads to thymic hyperplasia in a normal mouse, can I rescue thymic involution in a normal mouse to make it more immune competent? The answer is yes. So what we did here is um, uh, we gave a GIF7 or uh, IL-7 or a PBS to uh, old mice prior to us challenging them with mouse MCMV. So they were naive to a CMV. And we then interrogated the number of tetramer-positive T cells that came out of those mice. And we found that uh, <clears throat> an older mouse, if you gave it GMSS7 and IL-7, given MCMV, there was a certain number of tetramer-positive T cells that came out, but GIF-7 markedly augmented that and increased it almost to the level of what you would have seen as part of an immune response of a juvenile mouse. So these data suggest that GIF-7 can rescue a thymic response. And again, GIF-7, you can think of it as use in vivo for TCR replenishment um, or uh, thymic rescue. This just recapitalizes here what I've just uh, spoke of. <clears throat> GIF-9 is the last GIF I'll talk about, though we publish all the others, only because GIF-9 was the Rosetta Stone that allowed us to understand the mechanism by which GIFs lead to their effect. So uh, again, uh, cell biochemistry, there will be a test after this uh, lecture here. So GMCSF receptor is a hydrodimic receptor. Common beta chain is shared between IL-3, IL-5, and GMCSF. The alpha chain confers specificity. It signals via JAK2 and downstream of that, STAT5. IL-9 receptor is heterodimeric, has a common gamma chain, remember that, specific alpha chain, signals via JAK1 and JAK3. I'm going to attract your attention to one thing. All the common gamma chain interleukins use either JAK1 or JAK3. They never, ever use JAK2, any of them. GMCSF uses JAK2, does not use JAK1 or JAK3. Let that stick in your mind as we move forward. So, GIF9, you're familiar with the sequence, GMCSF, IL9, secreted. There's a schmear because GMCSF is glycosylated, so that's why you have that artifact on Western blot. And what we found was uh, looking at E-phosphostat 5, IL-9 doesn't do it because that's downstream of JAK2, GMCSF does, GIF-9 does it, the same as GMCSF, quality control. It does not lead to increase of STAT1 or STAT3 in a, a GMCSF cell line that lacks the IL-9 receptor. In a cell line here that expresses both the GMCSF and the IL-9 receptor, GIF-9 leads to increase not only in STAT-5, but STAT-3 and STAT-1. And relative to the controls, again, we see that hyperagonistic response. Now, as part of that hyperagonistic response, GMCSF-driven. So to answer that question, we did the same block, but without and with a blocking antibody to the GMCSF receptor. So when GIF-9 sat on the cell, it could only sit on IL-9 because all the GMCSF spots were blocked off by the monoclonal antibody. And we lost part of that hyperagonistic effect, suggesting there was synergy to signaling via the GMCSF receptor and the IL-9 receptor. So if there's synergy, 
So again, you know, I'm an MD, so I got to be concrete about these things. So the, the cytokine sits on the receptor, and when it sits on the receptor, the first thing that happens, the jacks get activated. So first question is, is does a fusokine hyperactivate the first step, the jacks, one, two, three? And we interrogated that by looking at phosphojack, and the short answer is no. GIF9 did not hyperphosphorylate JAK1, JAK2, or JAK3 relative to controls. So how can it lead to a hyperagonistic effect if it doesn't augment the very first step downstream of the signaling? So the next step down are the STATs, STAT135. So GMCSF will bind to its receptor, tickle up JAK2, phosphate STAT5. IL-9 binds its receptor. So the idea we had was GIF-9 may bind to both receptor complexes contemporaneously and act as a chaperone. So GMCSF binds to GMCSF receptor, IL-9 receptor, and brings them together physically. Now, what happens then is a menage à trois, where you have jack one, jack two, and jack three clustered together in a way that is not physiological. The ion common gamma chain signaling complex never, never, never has jack two as a companion there. I told you so, but now we're introducing jack two. So is it possible now that we're getting JAK2 party, taking part of the party here, and it is the one, though they're not hyperphosphorylated, they're hyperphosphorylating all the stats downstream because you have this unnatural partnership induced by the clustering effect. So to prove this hypothesis, the first step we want to think is to demonstrate that if you put GIF9 on a lymphoid cell, can you actually demonstrate overlap of the GMCSF and the IL-9 receptor. And we did first a co-IP, an old school protein biochemistry experiment, but it's very robust. So if you take a cell line that expresses the GMCSF and IL-9 receptor, you put GIF-9 in saturating amounts, and you do a pull down with the IL-9 receptor, and you block for the GMCSF receptor components, GIF-9 pulls down both, and you do the reciprocal experiment to pull down GMCSF. So this is a protein biochemistry demonstration that both proteins were physically together. Then you can't just do old school. You need to have pretty pictures if you want to publish in cancer research. So, confocal, anti-GMCSF is red, anti-IL-9 is green. If you don't stimulate in the red, the green are sort of autonomous of each other, as you would expect on the surface of lymphoid cells. If you had either GMCSF or an IL-9, it doesn't change a pattern. But here, GIF-9, clearly all this orange staining speaks to co-localization. So two independent techniques. This is just metricization of the co-localization. So now our current working model is the following. In GIF-9, now here substitute all the GIFs. The way it works is it serves as a chaperone and binds to each receptor and co-clusters them. But it's not just clustering the receptors. It's clustering of ligand-activated receptors. So just developing a monoclonal antibody that's bispecific that would co-cluster receptors, if they're not agonistic, if there's no ligand activation, it won't work. You need ligand and co-clustering, and that's what this does. 
ergo they gain a function. So uh, this is like my, my, my geeky slide here, of course the chimera, the goat, the snake, these Greek guys were like, you know, I don't know what they spoke. So how do you move forward with this? You got the solution looking for a problem to fix. There's two approaches. <clears throat> you can make recombinant protein as I, as I kicked off my lecture, or the cell therapy approach. And <clears throat> the main threat or challenge of a protein approach is the FDA. FDA are our friends. They're not a threat. What's the threat is the cost of the studies required to inform an IND application before you treat your first patient. And if you have a classic protein pharmaceutical or small molecule, I estimated at $46 million. Having dinner last night, I was told that uh, I was naive. It's really more $10 million bucks. From my own experience, having three INDs using mesenchymal stem cells, autologous culture expanded, the IND informing studies that I did to obtain the ID was $0.1 million. And the reason that is so is if you do a cell therapy approach, it's a different branch of the FDA. It's called CBER with a B for biologics. And there they recognize that if the cell pharmaceutical is a human cell, that putting that in a bunny or a dog or a monkey is not informative. So you don't have to do those studies because they're not informative. And most of the 10 megabucks is doing the monkey studies. So you just do mouse data, and they're interested in biodistribution. Now, if the cells are genetically engineered, you're in a different world that hurt. You're back into the megabuck range. But these are not genetically engineered. These are biochemically augmented with an ancillary product they're going to wash off. So this is Adrosatar. So this is where Epic comes in. And our vision is to focus on a personalized immunotherapy. Personalized meaning your own cells or one patient, one product. Because that's a niche that we as scholars, university-based, can occupy. Because the Novartises of the world will occupy the space with universal donor cells. But one patient, one product, especially the non-gene engineered, Pharma is maybe less interested in that because they're more looking at the universal donor, but I think autologous therapies from an immune perspective have a goodly chance of being highly, if not more, effective. And the reason it's feasible to do so is because the FDA recognizes this as an issue. The FDA issued guidance in 2008. They don't like it when you call it that, but it's GMP light. This was meant specifically for us, university-based scholars, because our requirements to get an IND are lower because they acknowledge that this is only to do early phase one, phase two studies. This is not guidance that applies for a large phase three study. Industry, phase three studies, us, first and human. And using that guidance, it's possible to build out a facility to do cell handling. Typically, what, the way we did it is an expansion of our clinical cell processing lab to support the BMT program. And you go old school. Uh, you basically, if you utilize methods that are simple, robust, and economical, and you can apply techniques your currently students are using in the lab, as long as they're robust and economical, you can keep a, put a cap on your cost of goods. For example, uh, the mesenchymal stromal cells for which I have three INDs, if I were to ask a clinical research organization like Lanza to manufacture my cells for me, the typical bid is about twenty-five dollars to $50,000 per subject. 
to just manufacture the cells. Using our facility and our approach in our hands, it's $5,000. So I, as a university-based scholar using foundation money and NIH grants, can actually engage, obtain INDs and engage in clinical trials, which we've done now. And I think it's possible with these um, uh, Fusakine augmented lymphoid cells as well. So this, uh, as I told you, I was at uh, McGill for 13 years, uh, up to 2009. This was the McGill team. A lot of the GIFT-2 work was done there by a former uh, graduate student who's now a faculty at the University of Montreal. This is the team now at Emory. The big difference is Emory, all the buildings are marble clad, and the patient rooms are oak paneling. And as a Canadian, I can't believe it. But <laughs> And uh, if you think cell therapy is the hottest thing since sliced white bread, I invite you to join the International Society of Cell Therapy. Our next meeting is in Singapore. Next year in UK, the year after that in Montreal, there are regional meetings. The eat, talk, sleep, cell therapy, and very nice. And I was told that for those of you online, you need to now enter your activity code, JVSR, to get your CME. Thank you very much for your attention. <laughs> Thank you, Jacques. That was really enlightening. So I'll, I'll kick off with questions. So first one is GIFT-4. So you mentioned that GIFT-4 turns on B cells. It upregulates class 2. It upregulates CD80, CD86. And most people in the room who care about having antigen-presenting cells, they care about dendritic cells, take monocytes and GMIL-4 and turn them into dendritic cells. Have you ever, in the mice, done a head-to-head -head comparison of how effective your activated GIFT-4 activated B cells are versus dendritic cells for antigen presentation? No, we, so to, to that specific question we have now, we haven't done the head-to-head -head studies. Actually, we haven't done any head-to-head -head studies of our fusagines against uh, each other as well. Uh, It'd be a challenging experiment to do, I guess, because you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. I mean, if you get a negative result, people are going to tell you, well, you're not using, you're not making the monocytes correctly, you're not giving enough monocytes. But the impression I have is the biology is different. Uh, where are they home to after injection? The secondary homing to the tumor. The fact that the, they drive an ADCC, which is something that uh, I would not expect a dendritic cell to necessarily drive on its own. I haven't shown you the data how they interact with CD4, CD8s, but that's a, maybe a shared feature with the dendritic cells. What we found also, again, is that these B cells make huge amounts of GMCSF, which was really intriguing. And I think even though they have CD80, 86, class 1, and class 2, and you would predict they should be able to present and cross-present antigen, I think qualitatively they are a distinct APC, but the relative potency, I I can't tell. Okay, thanks. Yeah. I'll follow up with uh, GIF-4 and GIF-7. With 4, uh, you talked about the FC receptor being an important component in the um, response of the uh, antibody-producing cells. But I thought you said that these cells never switched from IgM. Do you think that the, uh, the effect is through them, or is there some downstream differentiation taking place? I think what's not through them per se, I think they drive something down, down, down the line. Uh -huh. So then, it's not antibody-mediated? No, no, no. I, I'm saying that the GIF-4 B cells trigger 
down the line a humoral response. I'm not I am not sure that they themselves are the cells leading to the immune response. They may well drive a, a B cell driven response downstream of them. That's what I'm thinking. All the only data that I've shown is that in GIF4 treated mice or where we did adoptive transfer, there's clearly an ADCC where you need FCR to have that ADCC. Is it the GIF4 B cells in themselves? Try as we can. We've never been able to get them to isotype, isotype switch in vitro. Now, in vivo, could they isotype switch? And that's a doable experiment, I guess, if I transferred, say, GFP transgenic cells and waited a period of time, retrieved those cells, and asked the question, have they isotype switched? That experiment we haven't done. So with regard to chipsets, when Paul and I were just young whippersnappers starting out with Alan Monk, we learned to do adrenalectomies on mice and rats. And the thymus exploded in terms of size over a period of a week or two. Is there any possibility that GIF-7 may be affecting the pituitary axis to knock out glucocorticoids causing this increase? So obviously we haven't tested that idea. <laughs> yeah, let me just think it through here. The only thing that uh, I would ask you, in the thymic hyperplasia observed in your model system, uh, was it due to an expansion of the double negative compartment? I don't know that that was ever But probably not, because I think in those years, they probably didn't have the notion of double negative and the rest. Because the, the expansion of the double negative compartment is our strongest clue that it's the compartment where, where which express the, expresses the IL-7 receptor, which is expanding, as opposed to all the components of the thymus. But I, I can't answer your question directly because I have another experiment. There we go. To go back to the GIF-4 story, I noticed when you gave protein to the tumor brain mice, it worked so quickly, yes? It's on, immediately, you gave one dose, and then tumor growth stops almost immediately. So. Is that correct? And wouldn't that argue that it's a pre-existing B-cell response or pre-existing antibodies? Well, the thing is, is what we find in vitro is the GIF-4 effect on B-cells and their phenotype is quite prompt. We see within 72 hours you have these huge clusters of B-cells, and within a week they're expanding. So I would expect the GIF-4 effect to be prompt the we did not do a timeline in regards to the kinetics of anti-melanoma antibody how they arise so that would answer your question directly but i glossed over the data whereas we showed that the gif 4 b cells directly act as helpers to cd4s and cd8s so we believe that probably one of the first plagues is not so much that they lead to an antibody response, which is important. It's necessary, but it's maybe not necessarily sufficient also. It also drives uh, CD4 and CD8 expansion in vitro, because even if you take GIF4 B cells and co-culture them with CD4s and CD8s, it leads to a really profound mitogenic effect on the CD4s and CD8s. So one could imagine a scenario, and these are difficult to prove in mice, where you, uh, the GIF4 B cells, especially the adoptively transferred ones, can home in to the tumor, 
where they're in situ, they can behave as APCs, they can behave as, in essence, a form of helper cell. People think of CD4 as helping B cells, but one can also think here of B cells helping CD4s and CD8s, and it's the sum effect of all of these. Now, to, to decipher these effects, uh, uh, again, I, using the knockout mice, I showed you the CD4 and CD8 knockout mice, there was a blunted response, which shows that the B cells are necessary, but they're not sufficient because there's no CD4, it doesn't work well anymore. There's no CD8, it doesn't work well anymore. So there are a lot of necessary components that are on their own uh, are not sufficient, but I think it's going to be the sum of all these effects which speaks to the complexity of the system and the beauty of a cell therapy approach because with a cell therapy approach you can recapitulate all that complexity by delivering the cell that we think is at the matrix of this effect which is probably an APC effect, a helper effect, and driving an ADCC effect. So I wonder if the effect of the B cells is tumor because it's well understood, sort of the gold standard in the field. If you want to get grants, you want to publish, people get it. We've since replicated that data in a, uh, a spontaneous lung cancer model in mice, and we get the same effect in lung cancer, which is completely distinct from uh, melanoma. So we don't think that this, we hope, but we have our lead data, it's not an idiosyncratic, limited to melanoma type of phenomenon. B cell depletion is tricky. B-cell depletion is funny, but also it's not entirely predictive of the role of B-cells, the role they can adapt. So I showed you the data, no, I spoke to you about the data tether depleted B-cells which blunted the anti-tumor response, whereas depleting B-cells in other conditions is uh, useful for B-cell malignancies. Um, Depleting B cells and augmenting B cell effector function are two separate things. And if you have a paucity of B cell effector function, depleting B cells won't change anything. By augmenting B cell effector function, this is what we're doing here. Now the question may be, if we augmented B cell effector function in our mice and then depleted B cells, do we abrogate the entire effect? I would predict yes. But I think those are two separate approaches. And the timing of B cell depletion is, again, uh, I do MS work. And there's an EAE model. And all depending when you do the B cell depletion, you can either worsen the EAE or improve the EAE, all depending where you are in the spectrum of disease and tissue injury. So um, physicians eagerly add B-cell depletion rituxan, because just about right now it's just about the drinking water of the Cancer Institute, because it's a tool at hand. They have a hammer, they're going to use a hammer for everything. If you have a negative result using B-cell depletion, it might just be a timing in regards to that disease entity where you are in the spectrum. So I'm, I'm a bit cautious about 
using this data to inform a B-cell depletion strategy. And I would always be cautious interpreting data, either pro or con, in the utility of B-cell modulation depletion in the cancer setting, knowing that timing is an important thing. Okay, one last question. You were making the gifts the first time. Were you trying to generate the agonistic effect you described, or you were just looking at what you were going to do? No, it, it was hypothesis-driven in as much as that uh, I was expecting, at the very least, uh, an ad additive effect that I could contemporaneous to an innate tumor response that could drive an adaptive immune response, which are mutually exclusive. I expected at least that additive effect. The unheralded observation was that these fusokines deploy novel functionalities that were not predictive of either cytokine acting alone. And the way to think of these uh, fusokines now, they're not the fusion of GM, CSF, and IL-2, or whichever interleukin. They're on their own, bona fide, brand new synthetic cytokines by their mechanism of action, because how they co-cluster receptors is, in essence, like a new receptor. And moving forward, using that mechanism of action could inform creative fusion cytokines. Or you could think of, you know, you'd like to take a GMCSF, which is JAK2 stat 5, and you'd like to interrogate bringing along a chemokine that signals via MYD88. And could there be a synergy there? So you could take GMCSF and fuse it with a chemokine. And we've published two papers doing that. And there's gain of function. So if you think along those ways, you could put a morphogen like uh, EPO, with, which is, a, again, a, for much a JAK2 stat 5 singling molecule, and couple it with an interleukin. Um, you know, it's an idea for graduate students. I'm not doing that. But you may deploy a functionality that is now all based on the biochemistry of receptor clustering. And that's how I would propose thinking about this. So uh, I'll have one question for you. How many cytokines, morphogens, or chemokines are there? OK, let's say 100. How many fusion cytokines could you make? Yeah, OK, so 100 exponential, 2 minus 1. That's 10,000. That's AB. If you, I was asked a question, well, why don't you put IL-2 in front of GMCSF? Well, OK, that's BA, so that's 20,000. So, and it's all IP rich, especially if you discover unheralded functionality that were not predicted by the prior art. So get back to the lab. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you, everybody. Thank you, John.